With an extramarital affair behind them, Alan and Betty Gore seemed to be back on track in their marriage. Betty was leading a marriage encounter group, and Alan was trying to reduce the number of work trips that took him away from his wife and their 5-year-old and 11-month-old daughters. When he left on a work trip Friday, June 13, 1980, Alan never knew it would be the last time he would see his wife alive. Their small community would be rocked by a brutal murder committed in broad daylight by someone so close to them. This week's episode is The Murder of Betty Gore, Part 2. Up bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Well, this is the one that's... Um, was very hard researching. The whole, you know, researching about the extramarital affair was hard to read just because, you know, it's sad that that all happened. But this one was very, this part was very graphic. It is one of the more graphic murders I think we've covered. I agree. And I, um, you know, we'll get into the trial in part three, but having read this, read the crime scene, listened to investigators who were on the scene and their take on what they saw, uh, it is it boggles the mind how everything like susses out when you see mm-hmm. this evidence and things like that. And you kind of go, OK, that's that's the defense we're going with. OK. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. um the uh, we'll talk about it, but literally overkill. Just yes. the amount of um, damage that was done in this small town. Was not prepared. No, not ready for it whatsoever. And you can tell the investigators that have, you know, are doing interviews now, thirty plus years on, do have not forgotten. I mean, oh, it's something gosh. that, and of course, I don't you imagine know, you ever do. No, and the family, of course, hasn't forgotten either. But that's something that absolutely sticks with you, and you just see that uh, it's it's actually this is one of the the parts on the show that I think was reasonably well on the Hulu. Document mm-hmm. or not documentary? I keep saying that the dramatization on Hulu, where it was reasonably accurate that folks are just touching stuff, mm-hmm. and so they yeah, uh, very similar to like the John Bonet mm-hmm. case. There's a thousand people walking in and out, and evidence being mishandled, and um, it's kind. Of, I, I think when things like this happen in cities or towns, small towns where. This is never expected. Mm-hmm. People, I mean, I want to say people don't know what to do, but I think everybody, when they go through the police academy, they're trained on what to do. But I guess maybe just not doing it as much as if you're in a big city, you don't, you just kind of forget or you're all of your kind of training goes out the window because you can't believe you're staring at what you're staring at. I don't know. But any, any time where stuff like this happens where it's unlikely, Everybody just boggles stuff from the get. And I think maybe it's different when you see something on paper versus when it is in front of you and Mm -hmm. you might just panic. And, you know, we'll see everybody that comes across the scene is it rightfully induces panic, horror, shock. Uh, So, yeah, maybe some of it does go out the window, but it definitely is just a not that any episode with the title murder in it is, you know, it's just a there. We'll get into some graphic details. Yeah. Yeah. They're. 
There is. And what we say is still graphic, but we are still keeping it pretty mild for yeah. for what happened. But yeah, there are for definitely sure. some, uh, if those kind of things upset you, maybe this one isn't for you. However, if you are interested in this and you haven't listened to the first episode, I'd go back and listen to that because everything that we talk about in that episode really sets up, I don't even want to say why this happened or how it could have happened because I, the two things don't go doesn't make sense to me uh-huh. how one of these things can lead to the other, but just some context. Yeah, yeah, some context. We've had a lot of people write in that say they watched Candy since listening to the first episode, and most don't love it. Yeah, we've had some <laughs> some negative reactions, and I think it's again one of those where you're if you didn't know the un- the backstory of it, mm-hmm. and also just understanding from whose perspective it is, like yeah. it's from. Candy's perspective versus yes, not kind of more trying to character. Think, yeah, yeah, paint like a larger a picture, but yeah. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. After leaving for a business trip on June 13th, 1980, Alan Gore tried calling his wife, Betty, several times. Each time the calls went unanswered. Alan later testified that Betty was distraught when he left for work that day because she feared she might be pregnant again. Now, unable to reach his wife, Alan had become increasingly concerned. And she didn't want him to leave. And he was, you know, going to work first and then left from work directly to the airport, you know, after doing some stuff in the office and, you know, trying to check in because he knew that she was having a, a not a great day and did not want to have another baby so soon. I don't think she did either. Even no. with um, Bethany, that yes. one seemed to be a bit of a surprise Mm-hmm. And then, you know, she's still a baby, and then she's worried that she might be pregnant again. So we talked about in the first, like, she's already got her hands full with two because she's basically the only one uh, tending to them at home. Alan's gone on, away at work a lot. Also, he's uh, banging candy all the time, so he's yeah, not around busy. a lot. So to add another one on top of that, when you've already got a ton of anxiety and you struggle with postpartum that is very upsetting and they had done three foster kids but for short placements mm-hmm. which is covered in the show and it was one was like two weeks then she asked okay can we have a girl next time and then it was meant to all of them were meant to be temporary placements and the last one was the boy that they depict in the dramatization where he was he had been abused by his parents he had behavioral issues she just said i can't like like you said he's alan was not really around mm-hmm. she's like i can't handle three kids mm-hmm. that day after alan had left betty gore had received a visitor their oldest daughter elisa had slept over at the montgomery's house the night before she had asked to stay another night so candy offered to come by to pick up the girl's swimsuit so elisa could attend swim practice candy arrived around 10 a.m. on friday the 13th and talked with betty Candy later said the pair discussed the affair between Candy and Alan. That's when, according to Candy, things turned violent. Around 11 a.m., a five-year-old neighbor named Tina remembered seeing Candy in her station wagon before leaving Betty's house. The girl knocked on the Gore's door, wanting Elisa to come out and play. And the little girl left disappointed. Around noon, a delivery man also knocked on the door, but received no response. All that could be heard was the crying of little Bethany in her crib. On the other side of the door was a gruesome scene. 
Official records would reveal that Betty had been attacked with a three-foot-long axe and struck a total of 41 times. The medical examiner determined that 40 of the wounds had been inflicted while Betty was still alive, according to Texas Monthly. Autopsy records also showed that 28 of the wounds were to Betty's face and head. This is definitely difficult for her family because her dad, you know, kind of you try to it's a salve for your soul, right? Where you go, well, whatever, whatever it happened, at least she didn't suffer. Hopefully yeah. she didn't suffer. And you hear that it was a Up large until quantity. the very end, she she would have suffered, which was shocking to me that someone would survive 40 axe chops before mm-hmm. the final blow. And I don't know if they just didn't go deep enough or, or what it was, but yeah, that seems like of all the ways to go, this is up there for one of the most horrific ways that you could go. And the thought of Bethany being in her crib really gets to me. That really got to me on the dramatization too. Tommy and I both were watching it and we kept saying, because I went into the dramatization not having researched anything because I didn't want to know how it ended. You were even like talking to me about it. I was like, I don't know how it ends. Don't say anything. So I wasn't sure if Bethany was okay. Mm. And Tommy and I were watching it and we both said, if anything happens to that baby, we are Mm -hmm. turning this off and I am messaging Heather. (laughs) I was like, surely nothing happened. Surely Heather would have said something, but it's so just, disgusting and disturbing to think the whole time this is going on that baby is in her crib screaming alone yeah Yeah. crying unsupervised nobody's picking her up and meanwhile in the other room all this is happening that's what i mean yeah i mean in the dramatization the baby's crying while it's going on yeah so you know i don't know if that was artistic liberty for drama's sake or if that was really happening but it would not be surprising if it was Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as this was going on, I'm sure that she was yeah. crying. Because it wasn't just the straight attack. There's like, you know, if it, they were talking, it mm-hmm. turned violent, whatever type of struggle. It would be at the very least to motion. The motion of chopping with an axe 41 times would take a, over a minute and a half. I, For me, it would take forever. And one of the things in the dramatization they do is her husband in the middle of the night goes out and gets an axe from their garage and starts chopping some wood in the back just to see like how difficult because he's Mm -hmm. like i think my wife may have done this but i'm gonna go see how hard it is to really swing an axe 41 times and by the end he is drenched in sweat yes and you know his arms are like rubber which would 100 percent be the case for me tommy and i were saying i don't know if i could swing an axe 10 times a three-foot axe is heavy yeah and then she was though i mean they don't really depict her as super athletic. She played volleyball, but I don't know. I guess if you get in a manic state where you're kind of just in um, literally out for blood, maybe mm-hmm. that it's just pure adrenaline. adrenaline. It doesn't yeah, even adrenaline. affect you as like it normally would. After brutally killing Betty, Candy had taken a shower, washed her clothes, then returned to church where she taught a vacation Bible school class. She made a point to tell her church friends that she had a perfectly reasonable explanation for having missed the recital earlier in the day. I went down to Betty's and we just got to talking and then I looked at my watch and thought I had time to go to Target and get Father's Day cards and I drove all the way to Plano. When I got there, I realized my watch had stopped and I was so late I didn't even go in. No one thought anything of it. 
Indeed, the only difference anyone seemed to notice about Candy was that she was wearing sneakers instead of her usual rubber sandals. And that was the thing. They were doing like this final play because it was the Friday end of vacation Bible mm-hmm. school and it was like Noah's Ark and they were all dressed up and there was a couple people that said yeah we looked around and noticed you know all the moms and especially Candy was so active in the church she was the highest ranking lay person in the church that she wasn't there of all people and it was just like oh well she, she must be running around mm-hmm. and she made a point to tell anyone she ran into this almost verbatim this mm-hmm. story of I went to Target to get these cards. I realized my watch had stopped. I realized I was running late. So I came back and went right there, you know, mm-hmm. like went out of her way to tell people, even called her husband when she got home eventually to kind of give him this the same story. And it's, um, you know, if you don't have any reason to think it there's something up, you just be like, oh, okay, yeah, well, that makes yeah. sense. But You're she like, always wore, they describe it as rubber sandals. I'm guessing they mean flip-flops, but... They Mm -hmm. call them rubber sandals and everything. But she wore those like all summer. She was kind of, that was her thing. So when she showed up wearing like Keds, people Mm -hmm. were like, oh, that's different. Mm -hmm. Well, she had to wear them because there was blood all over her flip-flops and she'd cut her toe. Yes, she had to cover up her severely damaged toe. Mm -hmm. Maintaining her composure, even with a deep cut on her bandaged toe and another on her forehead, Candy taught the children at VBS. She told the story of woodcutters striking down trees that would become altars to God. According to evidence of love, she told the children seated before her in the church sanctuary. We should always remember that what we are is not what we plan for ourselves, but what God plans for us. Later that day, Candy took Elisa to swim. In the evening, the entire Montgomery family took the little girl to see The Empire Strikes Back in theaters. John Bloom, co-author of Evidence of Love, told oxygen snapped candy was a pillar of the community she was everybody's best friend she believed that as long as she held it together no one would ever know and and yes she she said she sat through empire strikes back and tried to be very you know keep your eyes ahead don't freak out there was you know there's some fighting in empire strikes back and anytime there was violence or cutting or death she just would get really like tensed up and at one point one of the kids needed to go to the bathroom and she was like yep i'll take you yeah absolutely mm-hmm. let's go and just trying to like do the mom thing and then they drove home and got you know got tacos on the way home and was just very like yeah let's get tacos just you're trying to push down this really mm-hmm. horrific thing that you did if i don't think about it and i just pretend like it didn't happen then i think it's a way of disassociating so you don't spiral it's your brain's way of protecting itself But at the same time, it says a lot about her that she's able to just completely go about her day. I'm sure there was some panic and nerves. But if I had just hacked someone with an axe 41 times, I'm not going to be able to go back to vacation Bible school and talk to a bunch of children and then go to the movies. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's just it's it's wild. And in the um, Texas Monthly article, they talk about how. When they were waiting for Pat in the parking lot of his job to go to the movies, she was just sitting there and the kids were kind of talking in the back and she wasn't really paying attention. But then she heard Elisa mention her sister Bethany's name mm-hmm. and it kind of just like brought everything back. And then she could smell the detergent that she had used to wash her clothes. You know, I mean, like mm-hmm. it triggered her and the panic swelled up and everything. But she still was able to um, go about things for quite a long time, actually. 
so many hours of just pretending, mm-hmm. especially the fact that you've murdered this little girl's mom. Mm-hmm. And now you're giving her a peppermint swim mm-hmm. lessons. You're taking her to see Empire Strikes Back. You're feeding her tacos. While looking her in the face like, yeah, oh, yeah, sweetheart, let's go to the bathroom. Everything's fine. When you're mm-hmm. like, uh, I just took away her mom. Yeah. It's forever. Yeah. It's um, very dark, twisted behavior. Alan tried calling Betty again before his flight departed at 430. He got no answer. When his flight landed in Minnesota, he tried again. He told the front desk to forward all of his calls to the restaurant where he went to have dinner with colleagues. No calls came. Alan then tried calling his neighbor. Yeah, he had two coworkers he met up with, and they're like, come on, let's go get dinner. And he's like, I can't eat. Like, I'm so nervous about my wife. They're like, oh, it'll be fine. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it. I mean, like you tell your coworker, like you don't want to expect the worst. Well, I think no one really knew and this is how it is, I think, with a lot of couples. Like, Alan knew his wife better mm-hmm. than anyone. Like, people kept saying, she's probably just out with friends. He knows she doesn't have friends. She doesn't mm-hmm. leave the house at night because she has a ton of anxiety. She, she, she's scared to go out at night. Mm-hmm. She's already panicked that he's not there. So to explain all of that to someone that isn't in it, they don't mm-hmm. get it. But yeah. he knows better than anyone that, no, this is, no no way would this ever happen. Something terrible has to have happened yeah and then he's like i can't he got like ordered a cheesecake at dinner and was like i can't even eat and it's kind mm-hmm. of your buddies are like really you're being really worried about it and then that's when he starts the phone tree of the neighbors meanwhile if those buddies had only known yeah at the same time betty and alan's infant daughter bethany had been left alone and unattended screaming in her crib for 13 hours the child screamed so much that she lost her voice according to evidence of love Candy told herself repeatedly throughout the day that Alan would be home soon from work to find Bethany. However, Candy was unaware that Alan had gone on a business trip to Minnesota. Later that evening around 8 p.m., Candy, Pat, and the kids returned home from the movies. That's when Alan called the Montgomery house, asking Candy if she'd spoken to Betty that day. That's also when Candy realized Alan would not be home from work to collect crying Bethany from her crib. And that's what I kept thinking all day is, in addition to it is horrific that she committed the murder on top of that she's willingly abandoning this 11 month old brutalizing a a child in addition to the mother that she's already brutalized and then again finding some sort of twisted way to just explain it to yourself of like well she'll only be screaming alone from Mm -hmm. like 11 a.m to 5 30 when alan gets home it's like that's still too many hours to be screaming alone but then she gets this call and she's like oh shit it it's worse than i thought Mm mm-hmm also, she left it for Alan to find. That's what's another super fucked up thing about this. You had a relationship with this man that you say you were in love with for seven months mm-hmm. or however long it was. And they still, she said she still loved him afterwards, not in a romantic way, but like as a friend, they considered each other like yeah. close confidants still. And so not only you're taking care of Elisa looking her in her face knowing her mom's laying in a pool of blood back at their house knowing that her sister is in her crib screaming her head off and then at some point you think you think alan's coming home that day from work and then he's gonna find that so you have completely traumatized the entire family the entire family in the matter of hours Mm -hmm. and you're talking to all of them like nothing happened that's just so eerie all of it and we'll see her behavior is 
Uh, she doth protest too much, a little bit yeah. too helpful, a little too friendly yeah. in the days after. I think, I think that started, too, with the, I went to Target, and then my watch stopped, and, you know, I came right back here. It's It was definitely, um, she was trying to oversell it. Mm-hmm. Candy offered to go over to Alan's house to check on Betty. He declined the offer, saying he was going to call his neighbor again. When his neighbor Richard reported back that both cars were in the garage and that the lights were on, but no one was answering the door, Alan knew something was terribly wrong. Richard agreed, telling Alan, Something's wrong, Alan. I don't know what, but something's wrong. According to evidence of love. This is also fucked up. So she's going to go over there and then what? Then you discover it and then you call it in and say, oh, there's been a terrible axe murder. And if she had done that, that would have at least given her an excuse to have touched the crime scene. Yeah, that's true. But she, again, it's this very, in addition to a very brutal act that she already committed, it's this deception on top of it Mm -hmm. and this sick, like, no, I'm still perfect. I... Yeah, I think she, like so many others we've covered, she just thinks that she's not going to get caught. Like mm-hmm. that she's like, well, there's just no way. There's yeah, just she- no way. I'm I'm the I'm the vacation Bible school mom. I've got mm-hmm. the best party house. Like there's just no way this mm-hmm. terrible thing happened. But it was just a little hiccup, and then my life's going to get back on track, and it'll be fine. That's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And you just go, well, I just have to deal with it just mm-hmm. like I deal with everything else. And it's like, no, yeah. you destroyed several lives. Yeah. You took a life very, yes. very heinously, too. Desperate. Alan told Richard, I want you to go and get in that house any way you can. Richard was a realtor and had sold Alan and Betty their home a few years earlier. Thinking he may still have a key to the house, he grabbed his ring of keys and headed across the street. Richard was met by two other neighbors, Jerry and Lester, who had also been asked to help. The three men searched the perimeter of the house for a way in. After trying several locked side doors and windows, Richard made a surprising and unsettling discovery. The front door was unlocked. Apprehensively, the men entered the home, calling Betty's name. Proceeding with caution, they checked various rooms. When Jerry looked into the bathroom and saw a dark red stain on the floor, The men knew something awful had happened. Continuing on, Lester and Richard checked one of the bedrooms. There, they found little Bethany in her crib, covered in her own feces, her face red and puffy after crying for so long. Quickly, Richard picked up the baby, cradled her to his chest, and rushed her back to his own home to call the police. Yeah, and the dramatization, they opened that door, and all of them, all of these people seem to have kids Mm -hmm. and they are just shocked and Mm -hmm. immediately like oh my god the baby and they grab Mm -hmm. her and richard takes him back to her home and his wife's there and he's like take care of her take care of her i gotta call the cops so when you walk in and you see like she hasn't just been here for a little bit i mean Mm -mm. she's her hair's a mess she's her face was so blotchy from just crying her voice was completely gone she Mm -hmm. had poop all over her like it was It was a messy scene. So, you know, like, she's been in here for quite a while. Yeah, and so she's exhausted herself, just, you know, wanting someone to take care of her. Oh, yeah. She's hungry, thirsty, um, distraught, all of those things. And all day long, Candy went to go, she went to go see the Empire Strikes Back. Mm Mm-hmm. Lester and Jerry continued to search the house. Aware that a strange odor seemed to be getting stronger, a 
according to Texas Monthly. Eventually, they came to the only room they hadn't checked, the utility room. As recounted in Evidence of Love, Lester opened the door and exclaimed, Oh my God, don't go any farther. After a few seconds of processing what he had just seen, he told Jerry, She's dead. Jerry was next to take a look at the grisly scene. Neither man could stomach looking beyond the utility room door for long. In fact, all they knew was that there were pools of thick, coagulated blood surrounding Betty's lifeless body. Moments later when the phone rang, Jerry had to deliver the unbelievable news to Alan. I'm afraid it's not good, but don't worry. The little one is okay. Alan asked if his wife was alive. Jerry told him, It looks like she's been shot. Yeah, they. Jerry thought when he opened the door and in the book Evidence of Love, it says he said to Lester, she's blown her head off. Yeah. They thought that she had completed suicide because they weren't going in the room all the way, of course. No. Like, why? I You couldn't. So... And I don't think it would occur to anybody that someone had axed her 41 times. No, and that's a testament also to the significant damage around her yes. head that it looked like it was a wound from a gunshot. Mm-hmm. That's how severe it was. Yeah. And he uh, told, when he said to Alan, it looks like she's been shot, Alan was super confused and he said, how? We don't have a gun. Yeah. You know, I mean, so even to him, he's like, well... I don't think she could have done that herself because we don't have a gun. Did someone come in and you're just in total shock, not to mention you're thousands of miles away and you can't be there and your kids are both there. It's like the worst situation to find yourself in. I'm sure you just feel completely helpless. Oh, yeah. In shock, Alan hung up the phone. He then called the first person that came to mind, Candy. He told her Betty was dead and asked her to keep Elisa for a few days. He also told Candy it appeared that Betty had been shot. This reassured Candy the cops wouldn't suspect foul play and instead would think it was suicide. Tearfully, Candy gave Alan her condolences before hanging up. She then cried to her husband, Pat. So you get a call. You're shaking your head with a look like this bitch. You get a call and you know you've done it and he's telling you all this and she's like, oh, Alan, I'm so sorry. What can I do? Oh, yeah, we'll keep Elisa. Don't you worry. Elisa's fine. Is there anything we can do for you? I mean, it's just it's complete sociopathic behavior that she can separate those two things. It's really sick. Yeah. It's extremely sick to to hear the the. Just absolute distraught voice and to just put on that mask of mm-hmm. like, I'm everyone's friend. I'm so sorry. And then, you know, you're crying to your husband, but you're crying for a different reason. Yeah. But your husband's like, oh, she's upset. She's lost her friend. Mm-hmm. You know, she's upset because she's murdered her friend. And she's a little bit relieved because she thinks she's going to get away with it. Yeah. Also, Pat knows that her and Alan had an affair. Yes. Also that. So Alan's called the house multiple times that day, yes. which I'm imagine pat doesn't love so now you're like it's 11 30 at night he called once again now and apparently they were trying to get it on when the phone call came in so he wasn't pleased about that either but the fact that she can go back and forth so easily and wear that mask pretty effortlessly it seems it's chilling is is chilling Yeah. yeah immediately alan flew back home When he arrived at his house where his wife had been brutally slain, 
Police informed him Betty had not been shot. Rather, she had been killed with an axe. A friend called Candy to tell her Alan had nearly fainted at the news. Candy barely heard her. She was too busy cutting up the rubber sandals she had worn while she hacked Betty to death. She then threw the evidence in the trash. So any of this stuff, you know, you see whether or not something is premeditated or, you know, happens in the heat of passion. The behavior afterwards, I mean, she well, fully knew the consequences of her action. She fully knew. Yeah. And she knew that and she was trying not to get caught. All of it. Making up the story. Acting like the friend on the phone. Destroying evidence. Away, yeah, throwing away the sandals. She, you know, she had washed the clothes right afterwards. I mm-hmm. mean, all of this, to me, that negates any type of, well, I was, you know, mentally, I wasn't aware of what I was doing, when afterwards you're, like, trying to cover it up. Yeah, that's a good point. When it, and as far as, like, a court's concerned, can you not know what you're doing during the act, but then... Be aware afterwards, and those are two different things. Well, and usually they try to determine, you know, competency at the time of trial versus if you were not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect is usually you were in some state at the time that you didn't know what you were doing. But like seconds after she finished Mm -hmm. the murder, she immediately went to change clothes Mm -hmm. or like wash her clothes and take a shower. Yeah, she went home, washed the exact same shirt she was wearing because she was going back to vacation Bible school and people had already seen her. In the Texas Monthly article and Evidence of Love, they said that Candy said, well, it was good that it was a burgundy colored shirt because she just dumped a bunch of detergent. And that's when she kept smelling the detergent later in the day. It kept Mm. making her sick because it was reminding her of it. And then she found a pair of jeans that was like the same shade as the one she'd been wearing. So she wore almost the exact same thing back up to vacation Bible school, except for the shoes. And later when she asked all of her, the people that were up there, hey, what was I wearing? Most of them said, well, you know, we're not sure. You know, I don't know. Maybe like a red shirt. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And then one person said, oh, no, I distinctly remember you were wearing red blouse, jeans, and blue sneakers. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, thank God they remember that's what I was wearing. Again, just more more things trying to cover it up. Yeah. The city of Wiley was not prepared for such a horrific scene. The town had a population of around 4,000, and its police force consisted of only three squad cars and a handful of officers. The arriving officer had called for his chief, who then called for the Collin County Sheriff. In short order, the entire investigative unit of Collin County showed up to the scene. Having heard about the murder on the radio, over a dozen other officers and first responders arrived as well. All those people, plus three neighbors, had been wandering around the crime scene, meaning valuable evidence could have been destroyed. Yeah, it was the first murder in Wiley in 25 years. Wow. And I read in the newspaper that they had four officers and the chief at the time. Yeah. So So it was not prepared. No. And I mean, a death is one thing. This type of murder, you're thinking this, we have a, a maniac loose. Oh, yeah, it's horrifying. And, of course, it's not a controlled crime scene, so neighbors have walked through and seen it, gone out, told their wives, told their the wives are calling friends. Because, yeah. you you know, if you think that something like if somebody is on the loose, you want to call and say, oh, my gosh, lock your doors, mm-hmm. like, watch out. Well, then now more and more rumors are getting out, and it's going to create, like, a panic. Mm-hmm. Knowing the scene was too much even for the Collin County crew to process, officials called in Dr. Irving Stone of the Institute for Forensic Sciences in Dallas. 
Dr. Stone had been the one to analyze the clothing worn by President Kennedy and Governor Connolly for the congressional committee that re-examined the Kennedy assassination. Dr. Stone usually only acted as an advisor, but given the gravity of the situation, they asked him to process the scene himself. He agreed and headed toward the Gore's home. When Dr. Stone arrived, when Dr. Stone arrived, he was greeted with what he called more of an unusual crime scene than I've been used to. He recalled to Oxygen that there were officers from Wiley and the Department of Public Safety in the house, along with a dozen or more neighbors standing in the living room when he arrived. He said in later interviews, Well, listen, that right away is a total violation of any crime scene. So as a result, I could already see that we were going to have a pretty contaminated crime scene. Dr. Stone got to work and meticulously processed the scene until 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, they called him like Columbo. They said he was kind of the one that could solve anything, but that he normally wasn't the one to actually get on his hands and knees and do the scraping and the hair Mm -hmm. and pulling it. But because I think you have so many cooks in the kitchen, there's like so many hands touching things that you want someone who is going to be that meticulous and is that expert level that normally is just an advisor. He needs to be the one that's pulling it and not mm-hmm. destroying things. Yeah. You yeah, you need one person that knows what they're doing to get in there and get everybody else out. The crime scene was grisly. According to evidence of love, the entire twelve by six laundry room seemed covered in blood. Investigators had difficulty looking at the scene because of the damage that had been inflicted on Betty's face and body. She was found face up, lying on her back with her legs out in front of her. Her elbow had been cut possibly as she held her arm up in a defensive position. The right side of her face was nearly unrecognizable, with her right eye gone. Her body lay in a deep pool of blood. They said it was an inch to an, uh, an inch and a half to two inches of blood. And to me, having that defensive position on her arm paints a picture of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, if you have one or two blows to you, Perhaps you could have been getting up and fighting back. Mm -hmm. But when you have been struck 40 times that they know of while you were alive, Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like you would have the ability to really fight back. And especially when 28 of those blows are to the head and the face. Yeah. 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 Which, so arguably she's down, she's laying down for the majority of the attack. Yeah, you'd have to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Dr. Stone, working alongside his son, a first-year law student at SMU, processed the scene. They collected scrapings of dried blood as well as bloody strands of hair from the guest's bathroom. In the utility room with the body, Dr. Stone noted the key piece of evidence, a clearly identifiable fingerprint in blood on the door of the freezer. An investigator took a photo of the print before Dr. Stone touched it. The photo was the only way to preserve it. Once Dr. Stone attempted to lift the print... It was destroyed, according to evidence of love. And back then you could lift a blood print, but it required super special chemicals that they did not have on the scene. And so he said, okay, make sure you get a real good picture. And they were about to run out of film. So the crime scene photographer took one single shot and it happened to be perfectly in focus. But at the end of the day, that's the only thing they had. They had one single photo and not an actual copy of the print. And again, because it's a small town, they don't have a lot of the stuff like that, Mm -hmm. that a major city would have that's used to 
more crimes and doing more stuff like this. And even he's from the, you know, the Dallas Institute of Forensic Sciences. And it was because it's 1980. So that mm-hmm. the technology existed, but it was not widely used. So he's like, we don't even have the stuff that we need. So you need to capture it and make sure you really get a good shot. And man, one picture. Well, came in clutch. Yeah. In addition to bagging Betty's hands, the doorknobs and the axe handle, they also took samples of the floor in order to preserve footprints. The bloody prints they noticed were small, likely that of a woman. On the living room rug, a police officer found a woman's fingernail. Thinking it may belong to Betty, they gathered it with the other evidence. Unfortunately, in some cases, Dr. Stone didn't get to the evidence quickly enough. Before he could carefully process crucial findings, several cops on the scene touched items with their bare hands, moving them from their original positions. According to evidence of love, this included the fingernail in the living room, as well as a sunglasses lens from the garage. Based on the nature of the crime scene, Dr. Stone was not concerned they had an axe-wielding maniac going house to house. He told Snapped, With that number of blows to the body and the actual murder weapon left at the scene, this wasn't going to be a crazy person going from house to house, in my opinion, at that time. Although that was the concern of certainly the neighborhood. Wiley didn't see murders, especially not like this. Neighbors began to panic. Despite Dr. Stone's early assessment, the neighbors had seen what was going on, and rumors began to spread. Owner of the Wiley Flower and Gift Shop, Robert King, later told the Dallas Morning News, We thought there might be a mass murderer coming around here. However, the type of overkill that focused on destroying Betty's face led investigators to suspect that someone who knew Betty, rather than a random attacker, was responsible for her death. After a few days, Candy and Pat took Elisa back to her father. Alan had the difficult role of telling his daughter the news about her mom. Candy was actually in the room as she watched Alan tell Elisa that her mother was dead and never coming home. When both Alan and Elisa started crying, Candy walked over, put her arms around father and daughter, and they all cried together. Another, the audacity of this Monster. Woman. Yeah. To stand, I mean, she he's telling his five-year-old, Mommy's not never coming back, and you know you're the one that caused her to not come back. Not to mention your feet from where the whole thing went down. The fact you can even set foot back in that house is fucked up. Yeah, all of it is. It goes beyond just self-preservation type of behavior into, again, putting on this mask, creating this whole, like, I was I was there when Alan told her, and we all just held one another. Mm-hmm. It was so emotional. Yeah, it was emotional. She, Elisa says, you know, who's going to take care of us? And he's mm. like, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. Because I have no idea how to fucking do anything. No. God. Soon investigators learned from the Gore's neighbor, five-year-old Tina, that Candy was the last person who had seen Betty alive. On June 15th, Candy was asked to come down to the station for questioning. With the police reaching out to her, Candy turned to her fellow church parishioner, Don Crowder, a civil litigation attorney, for his advice. According to Evidence of Love, Crowder told Candy that probably some drifter had committed the crime, and the police interview was just par for the course. And he was the only lawyer at the Lucas Church, and so everybody was asking his opinion. What do you think happened? And he thought, yeah, you know, because he hadn't been to the crime scene, but just based on what he had heard, he had painted this picture in his mind that it was probably somebody that had some type of issue. Maybe it was a robbery gone wrong. But you would, he would, I mean, of course, he said later, he never thought it would be her, never thought she would be involved. But she, again, like you said earlier, she thinks, 
I'm not going to get caught. They're just, Don said it was normal. I'll just go and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and he didn't think she was capable, nor did anyone think she was no. capable. You know, I mean, in a town of 4,000, that's pretty tight knit, especially the the church. So, yeah, I really think she thought everyone will, no, they won't be able to determine what, who caused, who did this. Mm-hmm. So it'll just eventually it'll, people will stop looking into it and, and I'll be fine. Yeah, that's, and again, I'll just pretend that it, I'll go to church just mm-hmm. like everything's normal. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Once at the station, the police questioned Candy in a friendly manner. Candy told officers about her visit with Betty and claimed she left Betty's and headed straight to Target. When they asked her what shoes she had worn that day, she lied and told them blue sneakers, rather than the rubber sandals she had actually been wearing. After two hours of questions, Candy left the station and went home. And again, thought she was totally in the clear that, okay, that wasn't so bad. They just wanted my story. And she kept, she had wrote, just kept repeating and reciting that and then my watch was broken and so I was late and so I went I mean just verbatim had that story for them and they said okay like you said this lady didn't she's not gonna wield an axe she's a church mom and small Mm -hmm. you know I mean she's thin she's like she's not you don't look at her and think oh she could lift an axe 41 times I also think she's kind of an idiot for I mean a lot of reasons but I mean but yeah but to it's like she doesn't understand the severity of the situation that I don't even think she thinks she can be caught because she's just that much of an idiot. Yeah. And not she also she had told Jackie Ponder, the pastor of church, that she really had wished that she had had a career. Out. She essentially graduated from high school, immediately got married and she said, I felt like I got pushed from childhood to womanhood and I really didn't have time. So maybe she had a little bit of naivete because mm-hmm. she was at this point in her life where she said, well, now I, I want to do big things. She, Jackie Ponder had gone to, you know, of course, school and then seminary school and had taught her about these philosophers and traveling. And she's, you know, so I think she was trying to kind of expand her knowledge base. But at the time, it was very routine. I mean, she lived her life by the routine of like she had her before they really got involved with the church. She really just kind of did stuff around the house, but then got involved in the church, started doing that. And so, uh, you know, this is not a, I don't think she had any experience in, you know, doing a crime and having, Mm -mm. you know, having to cover up for it or being in trouble ever before. And so I think she was totally out of her element in knowing how to respond to police questioning you and how, you know, you go to the person you think knows who's the church lawyer. Right. And he tells you like, yeah, it's fine. Just, it was a drifter. Don't worry about it. Just go talk to him. Well, of course not knowing. That's kind of what I mean. It's like, she left the axe there. Yeah. She took a shower both there at Betty's house and then again at home. So, you know, I mean, I guess this was in the 80s, so there weren't as many crime shows on TV and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, anyone now, most people would know, like, okay, well, my blood is at the scene. Mm-hmm. I've left the the murder weapon with my fingerprints on it. Like Mm -hmm. there's evidence of me being here and none of that occurred to her. She honestly, like when things would come up, she'd be like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. I didn't, I didn't think that uh, they'd find my hair there. You know Mm -hmm. I mean? She didn't, it didn't even like occur to her. Yeah. For every thing she tried to do to look, to act natural, like you said, change clothes or go have her little story. There was 50 things that she didn't think of. The fingernail, one of them was hers. Yeah. You know, you, you're like missing a big chunk of your fingernail. Where was that? 
they're going to find mm-hmm. it. That's their job is to literally comb the carpet and find stuff that you left behind or your sunglasses lens or whatever. So uh, it is strange how... Uh, for as much as she seemed to try to kind of plan after the fact or try to cover it up after the fact that there was a million little loose ends that she that I would say don't go and talk to police ever without a lawyer just as like a and Don Crowder was not again he wasn't uh, I don't think giving her legal advice I would just be like hell no he was also not a criminal attorney right um and he was a litigator so he, so many little loose ends I think that she didn't even it didn't even occur to her because of she had no experience in any type of uh, she didn't have any like prior run-ins with the law. Right. And you know, I mean, she's doing stuff all day. The the murder happens around 11:30. She's doing stuff all day. At some point she finds out, "Oh, Alan's not coming home." To me, you would think I need to go back over there and make sure I didn't leave anything behind. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and she never even went back to, to cover anything up. No. And the, I don't know if that is part of, was part of, she was naive and didn't really know how to plan or it's part of, I didn't do that. Yeah. I wasn't there today. I was there and I left and I went to target Lying and to I didn't do any of those things. Until yeah. you believe it. Yeah. Yeah, she was. On June 16th, there was a memorial service for Betty Gore at the church in Lucas. The next day, feeling guilty and concerned that police considered him a suspect, Allen called investigators and confessed that he had indeed had an affair with Candy, despite previously telling officers otherwise. He told them he had broken things off seven months prior, in November of 1979. He hadn't told officers initially because he thought it wasn't relevant. After his initial discussion with police, His daughter, Elisa, mentioned that Candy dropped her off at vacation Bible school, but left for several hours midday. Alan then thought the affair might be relevant. He came down to the station and spoke with investigators. And he also thought, I mean, he started to be, despite being in Minnesota and having a solid alibi, investigators were like, okay, did he have something to do with it? We think he's lying to us. Could he have hired someone? Could he have possibly hired someone? Also, the very disturbing part, Betty's parents came from Kansas to attend this memorial in Lucas the Sunday after she was killed. And part of the church, you know, whenever somebody goes through something horrible, you set up a meal train. Mm -hmm. Part of it was they had set up a meal train. And the person that was supposed to bring the food was unavailable. So Candy brought the food to the family Mm. in the Gore's house. She brought them food. And part of it, the... Betty's mom said, oh, you know, I uh, we don't have any room for that. Can you take that into the utility room and put it in the freezer? Mm-hmm. And she, with a just a straight face, mm-hmm. took the took the food, put it in the utility room, touching the same freezer that her fingerprint was on, comes out and starts talking to Betty's mom about dishwashers. God. Looking everybody in the face saying, do you want me to just drop off the food or do you want me to hang out? And Alan's like, man, I'm really going through it. Do you mind just hanging out for a while? Of course I will. I'll come talk to you. Monstrous behavior. Just playing the part. Yeah. Playing the part and knowing that the family is his, you know, her family drove all the way from Kansas. They drive all the way back to have a funeral for her in Kansas where, you know, more of her, you know, high school and early life friends were. And just to make small talk Mm -hmm. with this woman's family after what you've done. Yeah. Just don't bring the casserole or at the very least have the decency to leave the casserole and get out. Yeah. Now with the bloody fingerprint, officers wanted to compare it to Candy's, the woman who had slept with Betty's husband and had been the last to see her alive. Knowing an affair had transpired, officers now had a motive, something that had stumped them up until now. 
the police chief called Candy and asked her to come down and clear some things up. When she got there, officers chatted politely with Candy and asked if they could take her fingerprints, which they explained as a formality. They were obtaining prints of everyone who had entered the Gore's home in order to eliminate possible suspects. And by this time, it was Wiley Police Department, Collin County Sheriff's Department, DPD, Texas Department of Public Safety, their criminal division, the Texas Rangers, the Sheriff's Office of Dallas County is now involved, and the Forensic Sciences Unit. Because they they were, I mean, they were rounding up suspects. They started getting tips from people saying, oh, I saw a guy. He was behind a dumpster. He had blood on him. It might have been him. Another, they had, people were calling the Gore's house saying that they did it, which later Mm. it was... Uh, a gentleman for was calling from a like a halfway house. He had been released from a mental health institution mm. and then had seen the newspapers and like attached himself to that story. So they were I mean, it was canvassing the area. But at the end of the day, they said, OK, based on this evidence, we're looking for someone who they described as having a psychopathic personality yeah. to have to have done that this type of brutal crime. Well, I think the fact that she has gone about her life and and more than it's not like you're just like holed up in your house, just hanging on by a thread. She's going about her everyday routine and going over to the house and taking them food. I mean, she's, it's as if nothing happened at all. And you're going to call in all those people to help when this isn't just like somebody got shot in their house or even stabbed. She was axed 41 times. That is not something that ever really happens and so especially to happen in this small town they're going to call in the big guns from everywhere yeah and once they i mean you they they kind of go there's no way it was her but they go well she's the last one that saw mm-hmm. him, her alive she had the motive ish at least relationship with the husband and her footprint the tiny, is tiny footprint tiny like the one there and the her sunglasses well they couldn't test the lens cuz they'd picked it up mm-hmm. but i mean it all it all matches. She had been gone for several hours. Like, but again, you're like, surely sh- it's not her. And that's why they're like, let's just get her fingerprint and just be really. And this by this time, it was um, it was not Wiley PD questioning her anymore. It was the state level investigators that were good cop, bad cop kind of mm-hmm. going, oh, let me just let's just before we get into questions, let's just grab your prints really fast just to have them. And then we'll talk. And then uh, she gave him. She gave him the print. Yeah, and I mean, she never once asked Dawn to go down to the court or the station with her. I mean, she had talked to Dawn, but she, you know, hadn't retained him as her lawyer yet or anything. Mm -mm. And she didn't say, oh, they think I'm a suspect. She's like, well, they want to ask me questions. And if he said why, she could go, oh, well, I visited with her in the morning Mm -hmm. before I left to go to Target. And he'd go, oh, yeah, they're just trying to get a, you know, a handle of everybody that's been in there. It's no big deal. Then the friendly demeanor turned ugly. Officers outright accused Candy of murder. She denied it, but in such a calm and cool way, the police were immediately suspicious. They asked if she would be willing to take a polygraph the next day. She agreed and went home to call Don Crowder. Candy and Pat met with Don at his office in Allen, another northern suburb of Dallas. Don asked for a check in order to be retained so that their conversations could be protected by attorney-client privilege. According to evidence of love, Pat took out his checkbook and wrote down a check for $100. And I think at this point, Crowder thinks, this is like, she's barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, and he's thinking the cops are barking up the wrong tree. They just can't find this maniac who did it, so they're trying to pin it on the last person that was there. Mm -hmm. Candy continued to deny her involvement. 
Don advised her not to undergo the polygraph by the police, but offered to set her up with his own polygraph examiner to see how she would perform. Before Candy could meet with her lawyer again, reporters began showing up at her house. To avoid the media circus, she, Pat, and the kids went to stay with her friend Sherry in Lucas. And that's the thing is she, before she's really, I mean, before she's arrested, before anything, there's so many agencies involved that leaks start happening almost immediately of, well, there was a friend that was with her, you know, the day of. So all of a sudden reporters are showing up at her house mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to contain at some point when it's in her case. I mean, there's really no doubt she's the one that did it. But if that wasn't the case, now right. you have somebody with a bunch of people on their lawn and yeah. the reporters were already on the street on Dogwood in front of the Gore's house to the point that Betty's dad and Alan had said, you know, call Wiley PD has to do something, get these people off of our street Mm -hmm. because they were just hounding them because it was such a big story at the time. The children are still, they're all living in this house still. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the kids are still living there. And that's what Dawn said, you know, don't take the polygraph because you could just be nervous. Mm -hmm. And the police even said too, when she, when they said, did you do it? And she said, no, of course I didn't. And they're like, we would expect someone to be like, oh my God, why are you accusing me of this? But then she went, I don't know what you're talking about. No. Mm -hmm. And they're like, put her on the machine. (laughs) By the way, don't take a polygraph. Call Don Crowder. He did the right thing (laughs) for everybody to protect your rights. I know she's an ax murderer, but we all need to protect our constitutional rights. Pat also said that during this whole time, and I mean, he's convinced she's innocent, of course, but that the church was really supportive and they were mm-hmm. getting cards constantly, like dozens of cards a day that, you know, were like, hang in there. We're thinking of you. And yeah. so it was an interesting dynamic that she's it's gotten out now. She's the main suspect. They mm-hmm. all know she was the last one to see her, but she's still so beloved in the community and thought of as, you know, like the main church lady that instead of being suspicious they're all supportive and and trying to be there for her in her time of need like they said she's everybody's friend everybody Mm -hmm. felt like oh well that's oh they're accusing my friend yeah rather than meet with dawn again at his office candy met with her lawyer at his home according to evidence of love it was during this one-on-one meeting that candy confessed first dawn asked did alan do it did you walk in on something and get scared candy replied Alan didn't do it. When Dawn asked how she was so sure, she said, Because I did it. That night after Candy left, Dawn called Rob Udishan, according to evidence of love. He told the junior attorney the news. Rob, you aren't going to believe this, but what we've got is a self-defense case. And Dawn actually told Candy, don't tell Pat, because what do you think? What will, what will Pat say if you tell him? And she said, well, he'd probably tell the police. He's so honest. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't be able to keep it to himself. And Dawn's like, well, then don't say anything to him. Yeah. And he also, I think, would maybe put two and two together that, well, I know that they had an affair and, you know, she has some motive for why she might want to do this. Is this really self-defense or did she go over there with the intent to, like, confront her you know mm-hmm. and i i don't think so i think it happened once she got there i think things got out of hand i don't think she went over there trying to do this but with pat being such an honest like by the book type of guy yeah he's he's definitely gonna tell the cops as he should yeah meanwhile the forensic investigators were hard at work on comparing the fingerprint candy had provided against the bloody print on the gorse freezer door 
It was a match. Soon the media picked up the story. The newspapers and the evening news were reporting on the female friend of Allen's who had potentially slaughtered his wife. The Dallas Times-Herald, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and Dallas Morning News were all quoting police officials who named a woman in Wiley as the major suspect. In a move of professional courtesy, Rob Udishin called the police officer he had been communicating with, asking if there were to be an arrest to let him know so they could surrender candy. Udishin later told the Observer, I woke up one Saturday morning and saw a headline in the Dallas Times-Herald that said, Lawyer dares police to arrest axe murderer. They were talking about me. It made me more leery about talking to reporters. Is that pretty common that you would ask, hey, just let us know if you're going to come after her so we can just come there to you guys? And especially if they are, if the suspects already retain counsel, for everybody's job to be easier, that puts that keeps police officers out of harm's way. It keeps... Uh, People, citizens, you know, bystanders out of harm's way. Mm -hmm. If you do have a Sherry Papini where they're going to like rush her at a, you know, which she needed to be. She was a flight risk. But in this case, he says she's represented. We're willing to cooperate. Let us know. We will surrender her at this time. And that is professional courtesy, whether it is professional courtesy to call the news and then leak that he dared them to arrest her. I think that is uh, not very professional. I mean, uh, again, these leaks happen all the time, but in this case, I think that's a mischaracterization of what he said. If he just mm-hmm. called and said, we are willing to work with you. We're willing to come down there. And Yudishin was like the, he was two years out of law school. He went to UT. He was this like extremely by the book knew he knew the law left, right and center. And he was like the expert criminal attorney. And Everything's all well and good on paper, but when you get into real practice and you're like, okay, so I learned in school and I learned in my previous, because he, I, th- I believe he represented prisoners as mm-hmm. a, his prior practice before he joined the law firm with Don, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to work with law enforcement. It's going to be super clean, and this is such a mess and a circus that you think, oh my god, I just tried to, I, I literally just told him this one thing, and now, and so it was kind of trial, you know, trial by fire that he's now like. Oh, no, in the real world, it's super messy. It's super, they're not going to necessarily play by the rules. And they're going to try to really try this case in the court of public opinion. The police were leaking a lot of things, I think, because she was already represented. And I think they were trying to start planting this of like, she was this axe-wielding, jilted ex-lover before it ever got to trial. Do they do those sorts of things? So who... Potential future jury members are already going to kind of be biased once it gets to that point. Yeah. And especially if everybody, I asked my mom because, of course, she lived around here in those days and she said, Oh, yeah, we all remember this case. It was, oh, really? It was, she does. Oh, yeah. She and my dad, I and mean, of course, she's like lifelong Dallas resident. And then they bought their house in Mesquite in 1978, I think. So, which is another kind of a little bit, it was a little bit more farmish back then. Of course, mm-hmm. it's grown, but just like Wiley has. But, you know, you have a nice, three bedroom, two bath in the cute Dallas suburb. And you hear that a, Mm -hmm. you know, stay at home mom or at the time she was staying at home because she wasn't, you know, off for school on summer break, but is acts, of course, everybody's eyes are on it. And Mm -hmm. it was on every single, you know, as we we say, four, five, eight and 11, the four like Mm -hmm. major, you know, Fox, NBC, ABC and CBS were all, all the evening news was talking about it. It was the, if not the front page, at least like bottom of the fold or in, you know, local stories, it was, Something else was coming out about it, but also because the police kept leaking things. So there's like a ton of newspaper articles about this because they had they were just whispering the latest in the reporter's ears. Mm. Despite having the matched fingerprint, police didn't arrest Candy right away. Instead, they gave Rob a heads up when the arrest warrant was issued a few days later. After some issues with securing the bond, 
Rob drove Candy over to the courthouse, where he expected a private entrance. Instead, the pair was met with throngs of reporters and cameras. On June 27, 1980, Candace Lynn Wheeler Montgomery was arrested for the murder of 30-year-old Betty Gore. So again, the cops told a bunch of people, hey, Mm -hmm. it's happening. Get on down here. Yeah. And he said he had said initially when he called him, like, just to confirm, like, for her safety, our safety, what is it going to look like? And they said, we have a private sally port. You can pull in, which that's usually where the uh, police cars pull in so that you have kind of a direct walk into the mm-hmm. uh, to the jail. And no, he said that it was lights because it was in the evening because they had taken this really long time to work out the bond. The, the people that were writing it wanted the deed to their house, the Montgomery's house, and were asked because it was going to be a large bond set. And so it took hours and hours trying to get the paperwork all set. And then by the time that happened, the, it had leaked that today was the day that she was going to go get arrested, you know, turn herself in. And it was just lights, camera, action right mm-hmm. when she got out of the car. Circus. Yeah. So what do we think about part two? The, the, I think that the number one... I think the thing about this case that draws everyone's attention to it is the really horrifyingly normal behavior Mm -hmm. that she was able to maintain this facade for so many days. Cause she, the murder happened on June 13th. She got arrested on June 27th. Yeah. So living 24 hours a day, this, Oh, everything. I'm so sorry to hear about Mm -hmm. that. Let me bring you some bread. It's like, that is disturbing, disturbing behavior. In addition to the horrific nature of the actual yeah, crime. I was going to say, it's not only she's going about her business and seemingly unaffected, but after such a horrific crime. It, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, anytime you kill someone, that's horrible. She went above and beyond as far as like... Mm-hmm. um Injury and yeah, yeah, and just you know, I mean, it was so. It seems so personal to go yeah. after her that much. I mean, literally, they used the word overkill, mm-hmm. and for it to be primarily to her face and head, all of that mm-hmm. just screams like anger, resentment, hatred. This is I felt this way for a long time. This is all personal, you know. I mean, that's a very personal way to kill someone. Period. Mm-hmm. And then when you're doing it for that long there's a baby screaming in the background you're Mm -hmm. a mom yourself then you go home and you take her kid out to the movies after you just killed her mom yeah it's unthinkable yeah horrific way it really is and yeah everybody is entitled to a good defense and um you know she did the right thing contacting police and everything but in this case i think you're adding you're now inflicting more upon the family and again her betty's family came to dallas they came to Mm -hmm. wiley and had their daughter's murderer look them in the face and put a casserole in the freezer in the room Mm -hmm. where their daughter was just murdered and then they're gonna sit in the courtroom and hear all of this and knowing that all of that happened and same with elisa and same with alan all of them now know oh for the past almost two weeks You've been acting like you're our best friend, our confidant, mm-hmm. and you're the one that caused us this pain. And, and yeah, the one that was responsible for everything. Yeah. It's definitely, it's sickening. And she, to me, is not a sympathetic character. I no. would make the star of a show. 
No, no, definitely. And, and the not. Pomeroys, for their part, were in the book. They, you know, of course, gave interviews and were, I won't say disturbed, but you could tell that they were they were in disagreement of descriptions of Betty that started emerging in the media of demure, quiet housewife who was a weird loner. Mm -hmm. You know, she was quiet and had no friends and her family. And then her friends back in Kansas were like, she, yeah, I mean, she could be quiet, but she was a lot of fun. Everybody loved her. She was a great friend. She was was popular with the boys. She, yeah. yeah. And she was like everybody's friend. They said she was like this, you know, People thought, oh, she was so brilliant and so talented. Of course, she went off to college. Of course, she went off and married a really, really smart scientist guy. Of course, she was amazing. We all loved her. And then to kind of see the depiction of your daughter of like, she was a frumpy school mom mm-hmm. and her students hated her and she was really quiet. And you're like, that's not right. That's mm-hmm. like you're now re-victimizing them again Yeah, in mischaracterizing who she was. And like even in death, she's not being given the respect that yeah she, she you know that she wasn't also given in life. Yeah, it's definitely a hard thing to stomach all around. Yep. And in the next episode, we'll get into the trial, mm-hmm. the defense, the prosecution. Yeah. Yikes. And uh, Alan's testimony. Yep. And um, yeah, a lot of stuff that it's really fascinating, actually, to look back at trials, specifically one like this, where the science that they were using, and I use that word loosely, like Mm -hmm. that doesn't even get entered into a court of law today. You know, I mean, not with um, any type of like, we know for 100% that she's, she's not guilty because of XYZ. And you're like, Oh, this is like pseudoscience. Oh, they were all about the polygraphs back then. Yeah. They were like, well, we had Alan do a polygraph. Let's get Candy to do a polygraph. Let's get this person to do a polygraph. They're all on all on polygraph train. And of course, we now know that polygraphs are not they're uh, not as accurate as they were relying on them in the mm-hmm. 80s of like, well, and we they know for certain. They also <laughs> we're going to see that she goes to a she gets hypnotized. Yes. And a lot of stuff comes out from that that, you know, I mean, and there's stuff there's I'm not saying all that's like total bullshit, but this trial is something else. Yeah, we will. We had to dedicate an entire episode pretty mm-hmm. much to the trial because there was so much to cover. Yes. And Heather will give us all the breakdown and expertise. Legal rundown. The legal rundown, especially been, since it happened in Texas, you'll be especially knowledgeable. When I've been re-reviewing old law review articles and old case law, because of course the law evolves and changes. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying to find articles and and case law from that time of what was these defenses? What was this prevalent and things like that? So we'll discuss that in part three. Be very interesting. We love providing sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. 
As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those enrolling the airwaves and getting into it tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and this month was an update on Rodney Reed, a Patreon-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And patrons in our Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to see live-streamed in May. It was The Wheel in June. June. If you sign up, you will decide what it will be. You'll decide our fate. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us and you, sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag, like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop on the top banner. You can also go to the top banner and click on Live Shows. Live Shows. And then you can have all the information for our tour that is currently underway, upcoming stops, and to get tickets. We would love to see you there. We're having a blast. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also just share any episode with them by clicking those three little dots up in the right-hand corner. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can also check out Spotify. We have playlists at Sinisterhood.com slash playlists. If you want to share the show with a friend, but you know your friend has real specific tastes and only wants episodes about cryptids or cults or true crime, there is a playlist for that. So go to Sinisterhood.com slash playlists. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We also have a TikTok and a YouTube. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO, and I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world, and I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Ashley Jensen. Marissa King. Grace Wang. Alexis Harrison. Natasha Sailors. Carrie Johnson. Shannon M. Paget, Dr. Magusums. Nicole Armstrong. Charles Jones. Minxy Minx. Richard Matt. Mariah Bieber. Abby. Emily Tuffinelli. Rachel Casey. Kate Hartman. And Elizabeth Beauvoir. Thank you so much for your support. We could not do this without you. We hope we pronounce your names correctly. We love you so much. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Bah-ha-ha-ha. Sinister Hood.